It is Tuesday, August the 11th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining the economic, social, political, and geopolitical implications of a world turned upside down by pandemic. I am Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution, as well as the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism, and it's my great honor to be your moderator today. Now, we've been doing Goodfellows for the better part of five months now, I do believe, and for those of you who tune in regularly, we appreciate your loyalty. Uh, for those of you who are first-time viewers, however, here's what you're in store for. For the better part of the next hour, a conversation featuring three Hoover Institution senior fellows, or as we like to call them, the good fellows. It's a joke, folks, but good fellows, senior fellows, offering their unique insights into what may lie ahead in these uncertain times. Now let's meet the good fellows, beginning with John Cochran. He's an economist and the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson senior fellow. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks. I addressed better this week because you guys gave me such a hard time last week. Okay, we'll get into that later. <laughs> we are also joined from his Wilderness Outpost by Neil Ferguson, the renowned historian and author. Neil is also the Hoover Institution's Millbank Family Senior Fellow. Neil, good to have you back after a week's absence. How are you doing, my friend? I'm, I'm back without my beard, which, which is significant because that signifies that a book manuscript has been completed. Okay. And somebody who completed his book manuscript long ago, his book is coming out in September, actually is our third good fellow. That is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, the Hoover Institution's Fuada Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow. H.R., by the way, is the host of the newly launched Battlegrounds series of interviews in which H.R. talks to world leaders about challenges uh, moving ahead. Uh, the first episode launched last week. H.R. has an interview with the Foreign Minister of Afghanistan. It's on YouTube. It's at the Hoover Institution website. Check it out by all means. H.R., congratulations on another venture. Hey, thanks. Good to see you, Bill. Good to see you, John and Neil. And Neil, congratulations on finishing the book. Thank you. All right, so gentlemen, uh, in honor of having the three of you on the same screen again, and it's great to have the gang back together, we're going to do something a little different this week. Rather than me toss out a topic at you, we ask the three of you to each bring your own topic to discuss this week, what we're going to call a potluck show. I wanted to go with brown bag, but our very talented producer thought that evoked images of four guys sitting outside a liquor store sharing a bottle of Magdog 2020. So we'll stay on the high road and go with potluck here. So uh, no order here, but we'll just start with John Cochran. And John, what did you what are you going to serve up for us today? What's your potluck specialty? Well, I'm an economist, so uh, I would serve up. Let's talk about the economic situation, uh, which is sad for its stasis. Uh, Congress gave up on the only thing it seems to know how to do, which is shovel newly printed money out of the front door uh, and, and went home. Uh, Trump started, picked up the phone and pen and started inventing various things that all of a sudden shocked everybody. But the deeper issue, I mean, this got, this got played up as the big, big question of, you know, are we going to save us or not? Um, it's really sad. Uh, I saw something referring to the U.S. as a failed state. <laughs> it's really sad that we're heading in this direction. We, we don't have uh, competent testing in place, um, which would stop this. We don't have competent public health in place. We don't have much uh, significant research going on. Uh, all the government can think to do is shovel money out the front door uh, in a willy-nilly fashion. And, and let me, you know, uh, this is bipartisan. The Republicans want to send every registered voter another $1,200. Now, how can I be hard-hearted? Wouldn't it be nice to get $1,200? But, you know, this money comes from somewhere <laughs> sooner or later, eventually. Uh, money does not grow on trees. And there really is a, a vision here 
Uh, as an economist, I, I believe in economics is all about incentives. And uh, the other view is that it's all about just handing out money. <laughs> Uh, you know, one of the things mentioned is the $600 a week unemployment uh, benefit. Um, well, how could you be hard-hearted about that, says Nancy Pelosi. But there are a few people who understand incentives. And if people get more money to stay home than they would at their jobs, uh, they don't go back to their jobs. There's plenty of jobs that need filling. And here in particular, this is a supply-side recession. The idea that we simply need to print money and fill it up with demand and all will be right seems so particularly um, short-sighted. But that's really, the, if there is anything intellectual here, the fault line is, does an economy go, grow uh, just by filling it with newly printed money, or does an economy need incentives for people to go back to work, to start businesses, and so forth? So between that and the city's continuing to fall apart, it's uh, been a depressing week for the grumpy economist. Okay. Well, gentlemen, tell me, either of you are surprised that the government's handing out money during a, during a pandemic with an election less than, what, 80-some days away? But here's the question, fellows. What should government have done differently? What, government, what should government be doing differently at this point? Well, I think there's a reasonably straightforward answer to that, because we can look around the world and, and see which governments got COVID-19 right, and, and we can see what they did. Uh, the way you got it right, as uh, Taiwan illustrates, also South Korea, was as soon as you heard something fishy was going on in Wuhan, you started uh, not just to test people and to ramp up your ability to test people for a new uh, coronavirus, but you also made sure that uh, you would contact trace effectively. And the Taiwanese and South Koreans really showed how this was done, which meant that they never had to do economic lockdowns. Uh, they, they understood partly, I think, because of their experience with SARS and uh, to some extent also what came out of MERS, that with coronaviruses, it's all about uh, early action, uh, early detection, and early contact tracing. And if you can do that, uh, then you can play whack-a-mole from the get-go and prevent uh, a really large-scale contagion. And the number of deaths in Taiwan has, I think, remained in single digits right the way through uh, the time that we have been doing uh, this series. Now, the remarkable thing, and I, I'm sure uh, John and HR would agree with me on this, is that if you went back to last year, on paper, the United States was one of the best prepared countries in the world for a pandemic. There were all kinds of surveys that said that. The UK also ranked uh, highly. And so the big mystery of 2020, which I think remains to be resolved, though it is part of the book that I've just finished writing, is what went wrong when we were on paper positively awash with pandemic preparedness plans and PowerPoints and people whose one job it was to deal with the pandemic. Now, the standard narrative from the New York Times, uh, the Washington Post and CNN is that it is entirely 100% the fault of Donald J. Trump, the president of the United States, and that's the end of the discussion. But that that just can't be right. Uh, it, it isn't actually the job of the president uh, to sit uh, looking for the first sign of a new coronavirus and a possible pandemic. There are people whose job that is at the Department of Health and Human Services, 
and there are people whose job it was at CDC uh, to get uh, testing ramped up uh, in such an eventuality. And, and so I think the key story here is that there has been an epic failure of our public health bureaucracy. And it's still going on. As John said, the testing in the US is still woefully slow and people don't get results back often until a week after but the test is useless. Contact tracing, forget about it. In Massachusetts, it's about the only state where you could say something uh, reasonably efficient was working. So this has been a failure of, of what uh, is sometimes called the deep state. You could call it the administrative state, but it's certainly been a failure of, of big government. And I think the irony is that in the wake of this failure, uh, which of course led to the lockdowns, because once you've lost control of a disease, you end up panicking, which is what happened in March, and whole states essentially shut down their economies. Then, well, the only thing that big government has left to do at that point, having shut the economy down, is to start mailing checks to people in the hope that they won't take to the streets. And even that didn't work because they did take to the streets. So I think the epic failure here is the thing that is really remarkable. And when you failed at public health this badly, frankly, there isn't an economic policy that is going to help you. I, I just want to add, this is a larger picture of America, which many have pointed to, that uh, our federal government knows how to send checks around, uh, but doesn't know how to run anything else anymore. I think you put it very well. It's a failure of the low-level bureaucracy. And I just want to highlight, you mentioned the plans. I, I did look into this. There's at least 12 pandemic plans uh, interestingly, none of them cites the existence of any of the others, and I have not heard of anybody so much as reaching for the shelves to say, oh, let's go see what's in the pandemic plan, uh, despite the CDC and, and FDA not just not seizing the reins and doing the right things, but blocking things. We have tests that can return results in an hour. The FDA won't let you use them because they're not perfect enough. Uh, just the whole concept that one could use a test not to diagnose if an individual patient is sick, but to find swaths of people who aren't sick. The public health use of a test as opposed to the diagnostic use of the health. This is a concept that the, the FDA and CDC have not even started to think about. Uh, so you're right. We, we're seeing epic failure of bureaucracy on the low level. And it's it's funny that our country wants to personalize it all and make it about Donald Trump or, or presidential politics, but that's not the way a country is supposed to work. HR, I had a question for you, actually, because, you know, John and I are the classic uh, professor types who sit in our studies pontificating about the failures of government. Uh, you've actually been in government. I wonder if this analysis rings true with you, that the point of failure is not necessarily at the top, but in fact might be a point of failure further down uh, in the bureaucracy. Uh, does that chime with your own experience? Well, of course, there's there's enough failure to go around here, but and it's a failure as you're, you've already mentioned. First of all, a common understanding of the problem, right? So if you don't have a common understanding of the problem based on imperfect data and statistics, which we have, and then and then various interpretations of that data that sadly, as as John has alluded, has been colored colored by by partisan politics, and and, and I, I think that's one of the fundamental aspects of the problem at the top of the government, though. What you need is a concerted effort, and this goes not only for pandemics, but it goes for any element of, of foreign or domestic policy. You need an effort to coordinate and integrate efforts across the government, and in this case, to coordinate and integrate efforts across layers of governments, or vertically as, as well as, as, as horizontally. 
And I think what we have to do, and this is sort of the basis of, of the COVID-19 Lessons Learned Project that our colleague Scott Atlas and I are, are directing here at Hoover, is to, is, to, is to recognize, okay, we're not going to change the very nature of America and our system. What we have to do is work within those constraints to improve our response to this pandemic and a potential second wave or future biomedical type emergencies, emergencies that, that affect large numbers of people over large geographic areas. And I think we're onto something here with this theme of coordination and integration of efforts. Now that begins with readily available, transferable, authoritative data. And we can do that. We can improve that immediately to, to really automatically report that data. And I'm talking about basic data, like you know, what, what, what are the pharmaceutical uh, stockage levels? Or how many ventilators are on hand? How many open uh, hospital beds? How many, how many ICU beds are, are available? For example, in connection with the medical response part of this. Better data on, on, on supply chains. Okay, where, where is what we need for a pandemic coming from? And where are the ingredients that go, that go into the manufacturing pro, pro, process coming from? And is that supply chain resilient uh, enough uh, to, to provide what we need uh, when, when we need it? So coordination and integration of efforts, I think, is, is a theme. And what we have to do, I think, is recognize, okay, we are not going to, to give up our federal system of government to be more effective at a centralized level, right? That's not going to happen. I don't see a, 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 a single-payer healthcare system on the horizon. So we're going to have a mix. We're going to have a mix of, of a public and private system. And so we have to coordinate the effort across the public and, and private systems as well. So I think what we need as we look at how do we get to what I think what we're talking about is, you know, writing a plan is easy. It's how do you get to implementation? And, and that's where, where I think, you know, experience in, in running large, complex organizations, accessing complicated supply chains, breaking down bureaucratic barriers, those who have that kind of executive experience are going to be important to the solution here. And, and but, you know, the first thing we have to get beyond is to get beyond this vitriolic partisan politics and begin to really evaluate the facts that we know uh, in, in a more rational manner. So to their credit, the administration did notice exactly a data snafu like this coming on. They, they got pilloried for it and they uh, took the CDC out of the loop because hospitals were reporting COVID cases by fax machine. Why by fax machine? Because HIPAA compliant software wasn't in existence. They at least noticed this. And you know that's one little item that they did notice and improve. I think Neil let them off the hook a little too easy though. I mean, uh, you need the competent lower level bureaucracy, but you need people at the upper levels to, to be mother henning it and to notice when things are going right and going wrong. Uh, and to make proper appointments. Uh, it would have been helpful if, if they were, in some sense, uh, guiding the process a little better. But it's not clear that another party's administration would have done any better. Uh, but I, but I want to push HR back a little on this. This is a disease that will come and will go. What will stop us from having another beautiful set of PowerPoints that's, that looks back at it and says, yes, we need better integration and coordination. Uh, and then that thing goes on this as you know, on the 13th volume of the shelf of pandemic plans. Well, no one well, John, it's one word. It's leadership. I mean, lead, leadership. I mean, that's what you need. And, and, and you, know, you have to jerk, you have to jerk people out of their comfort zones and galvanize them, you know, behind, behind high standards and measures of, of effectiveness that everybody understands and they know that hey if if you don't perform 
But that means that's that's immensely important across our government. You know, it's uh, you know this this uh, you know this attitude that you're just there to punch you know punch your ticket and and uh, and get a paycheck uh, that can't exist in, in our government bureaucracies. So you want the high levels of administration to keep focused on this during the next three or four years while the disease has gone away, and to keep running the interagency drills and to keep improving the reporting of the, of the stuff and to actually pay, know where the break the glass plan is next time around. In some sense, the, the way they did uh, in response to 9-11, I mean, there was a lot of get the fire and the police to know each other's phone numbers and, and, and practicing that sort of stuff. Uh, well, I, I hope there will be the energy for that the next Well, you, And you know who's done some really good work in this area is, is our new director, uh, Condoleezza Rice, Secretary Rice, as well as Phil Zelikow, who's a who's a visiting fellow here at uh, at Hoover as well. Uh, they've been they've done some excellent work on strategic competence, and of course, Phil uh, Zelikow was the one of the co-authors of the 9/11 report uh, that put into place a lot of the you know, a lot of the remedies uh, to to affect better integration and coordination between you know between law enforcement and intelligence, for example, where there were bold lines that that were ridiculous and. And I think this harkens back to to also the the, you know, the National Security Act in 1947 that was really designed to avoid another Pearl Harbor, right? And that this is what created the National Security Council through the, the you know, mainly to based on the recognition that you needed to have a body that could coordinate efforts across these departments and issues and break down these barriers. One one of the problems with this narrative, like this deep state narrative now is administrations can come in and they go to war with their own government, right? Which, which really doesn't help when you're trying to get the government to perform more effectively. Another analogy for you, though, would be the aftermath of the financial crisis here. I'm bringing this back to something I know something about. You know, there were inquisitions and queries and research and so forth, and a flurry of regulations got written. And then about two years into it, everyone sort of grew tired of the whole business, and we are right back to where we started. Indeed, arguably, John, some of the regulations that were created uh, in the wake of the financial crisis uh, were based on such a false analysis of what had gone wrong that they actually were likely to make the system less stable if they had remained uh, in force uh, or or indeed hadn't simply been ignored when the next crisis struck. I want to make a a broader point, which I think is is something I've learned from, from writing this book on disasters in general. And that is you never get the disaster that you're expecting because the next disaster is never uh, a, a new iteration of the last one. Uh, and we have lurched really from one mini Pearl Harbor uh, to another, haven't we? Uh, since 9-11, uh, one crisis has been followed by, by another, but the genre keeps changing just when you've got your head around terrorism and actually succeeded in averting another 9-11, you find yourself in the throes of, well, it was a hurricane uh, which caught uh, George W. Bush off balance Katrina, uh, followed by a financial crisis, which uh, struck most people, and certainly most people in your profession, John, as something of a surprise. Uh, And and we've been really living from crisis to crisis. Uh, Our colleague Larry Diamond thinks there's actually a crisis of democracy, a democratic recession. I'm not sure I quite buy that story, but there are plenty of people uh, who 
collectively uh, in the issue of climate change uh, to the extent that by the end of 2019, you couldn't really have a conversation about anything else when the word risk came up. The World Economic Forum at Davos had a global risk report, uh, which was published in time for the January 2020 conference. And the top four risks were all climate related. And that was so funny because already a pandemic was underway at that very moment. And pandemics had fallen off the global risk uh, league table some years before. I think the problem for government, and it's not just a problem for the US government, is that it has to be sufficiently nimble uh, and it has to be sufficiently flexible to cope with all kinds of different crises because there will be crises. And the next one will probably be a different genre too. What if there's a huge earthquake? Uh, what if the uh, if there is a major seismic event? It could be in the United States, could be in China, could send the three gorges dam into collapse. There are all sorts of things that, that just will happen at some point, and you can't predict it because there's just no way of predicting when earthquakes strike. I think the problem is that government has become, if anything, less nimble and less responsive than it was back in the time of, of Pearl Harbor. When a crisis strikes, we seem unbelievably slow in response. And that, to me, is the really striking thing about 2020. Not that we were kind of blindsided when the, the pandemic struck, but that we're still bungling it in August. Uh, we're into the, the the second quarter, I suspect, of this pandemic, and we're still fumbling around without the testing working, without the contact tracing. So I sense a deterioration in the quality of uh, of U.S. government over time. And this is one of Phil Zellico's most compelling points. It's a point that our friend Frank Fukuyama made when he was on the show. So it's not that it's specifically public health that's gone wrong. The whole system of government seems to be dysfunctional. Yeah, Phil, Phil writes about this. He writes about this software of, of strategic competence and, and how we need to educate uh, future civil servants and, and you know, military leaders and anybody working in, in, in the civil sector more effectively. But I think, again, to, in, in this, this area of leadership, I'll tell you, I know, I know for a fact that there are extraordinarily talented and motivated and selfless civil servants in our government. Oftentimes, they don't have the power to make a difference. And that's because leaders aren't allowing them to do so. We need to flatten these organizations. We had we needed to crush some of the hierarchy in these organizations and allow people to take initiative based on you know, clear direction and a clear understanding of, of problems and, and opportunities. And you know, people talk a lot about you know about the black swan, right? Well, a friend of mine he says, well, you know, a lot of times we don't even notice the pink flamingo, you know, because it's right in front of us, but and we know it's going to be a problem like a pandemic, but we don't respond to it. Uh, respond to it effectively. And, and I think we need people in government to, to be able to survey the landscape and identify both the black swans and the pink flamingos and to do what Roberta Walshetter wrote about brilliantly in her book on Pearl Harbor, Warning and Decision. You have to separate kind of what is important from all the noise that's out there, right? Because I'll tell you, we, we, are, we are subjected these days to a cacophony of noise you know, on social media, the pseudo media, and much of it is very superficial and, and, and really it doesn't do very much to educate us, to educate us about what, are the, what the potential problems are. 
I mean, of course, that's why we need Hoover, right? That's why we need the Hoover Institution. Superficial social media is a good segue, I think, into Neil's uh, potluck. But, John, you want to say something quickly? Then I want Neil to serve well, up this dish. Because I think we've made some progress here. We started with we need we need plans. And I think the answer is we don't need plans. We, we know that an even thicker rule book is not the answer. Uh, what we need is a nimble uh, bureaucracy that is able to think and act quickly and adapt to what the next uh, what the next pandemic is hopefully led by good competent leaders, but we need that bureaucracy to be nimble, thoughtful, and adaptable. The question, but HR just told us there's lots of smart people. Why aren't they able to do it? And I submit that the rule book that the bureaucrats face is the problem. Uh, you can't just go out and buy N95 masks because that violates a stack of regulations this high on how government procurement has to be done. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, you couldn't possibly build the P51 in nine months the way they did in World War II because you have to, you know, have seven years for the environmental impact statement before you can start building the factory. Um, so I think our, let me sub submit the part of the problem is that the bureaucracy itself is so large and, and constrained by red tape that it cannot be nimble um, and that that may be the positive answer for what we need to, but we made some progress. All right. So Neil, maybe the problem is that on average people are spending 46 minutes on a so certain social media site engaging in rather mindless behavior. And that leads us to your potluck serving. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I guess, the next crisis could conceivably take place uh, in cyberspace rather than uh, in the physical world. And one reason that I expect that to happen is that nearly all the vulnerabilities that were revealed in the 2016 election in relation to the role of the network platforms in our public sphere have not been fixed. Uh, we've really spent the better part of four years in a kind of theatre in which Companies such as Facebook have promised to reform themselves um, and haven't really. And uh, hearings have been heard in Washington as if hearings were an end in themselves. Uh, relatively small-scale band-aid type legislation has been passed, but the fundamental problem remains that our political life uh, is now more and more dependent on the ways in which the network platforms function. And those have, if anything, got more, uh, I think, pathological and disruptive uh, over the last few years than they already were. I mean, one important uh, point, which I think gets lost in a lot of mainstream conventional political an analysis, is that a rising proportion of people rely primarily on social media for their news. That didn't used to be true, but there are probably around a fifth of Americans who mainly rely on platforms like Facebook uh, for news and don't really bother with other media. And that means that all the things that go on on Facebook, uh, the ways in which the algorithm optimizes for attention rather than for, say, truth, are playing a more and more important part in politics, there's also the problem that uh, we don't really know what people are seeing. Political advertising on Facebook is a huge business. It's an extremely important part of, uh, of this election. But everybody gets the ads that are tailored to suit their needs as inferred from Facebook's data on all their preferences. So it's a very changed public sphere. And I think we mostly underestimate that. I'm always struck by the way that mainstream political commentators talk as if politics is essentially the same game that was being played 20 years ago. Uh, but it really has changed by in the way in which by the way in which the network platforms uh, operate. And, and this is a crucial point 
from HR's uh, vantage point. Because it's so easy for foreign players to interfere in the discourse on politics that goes on in the United States, it was Russia in 2016, it's China now, we're also, I think, much more exposed to foreign meddling uh, in our politics than, than used to be true. So this is my longstanding preoccupation. You'll know that it was the central theme of my last book, The Square and the Tower. But I'm really struck when I look at what's happened in 2020 by the fact that we've actually had two pandemics. There was the pandemic we already talked about, COVID-19. And then there was the much larger pandemic of misinformation and disinformation about COVID-19, uh, which in many ways was more contagious uh, than the virus itself because it got to many more people very much more rapidly. And it's truly shocking to see when you look at some of the opinion polling what people believe about this pandemic and, of course, how they regard, for example, a, a vaccine. I mean, one thing that's going very fast at the moment, just to allude back to our last conversation, is the search for a vaccine. There, at least, we seem to be able to move a great deal faster uh, than we've moved with respect to testing and contact tracing. But what if we found a, a vaccine and nobody, or at least a substantial chunk of the population, would actually agree to have it? So I think this is a whole new set of problems, which I think have disaster uh, embedded in them because of the way in which they can disrupt the legitimacy of the democratic process itself. Okay, can I, I wanna uh, take the opposite side of just about all of that. Though I first, I first wanna, so Bill Whalen asked us a question a couple of weeks ago that we didn't have time to answer. If a vaccine finally comes, will it be rolled out with the same complete bungling that has been true of tests? And uh, you know, the vac we treat the vaccine as once it comes, it's gonna answer the question. It has to be distributed with the same bureaucratic efficiency. The tests have to be distributed with in order to be of any use. And we'll see how that goes. Um, hey, my, my friend is running that program, Operation Warp Speed. It will be done well. His name is Gerald Gus Pernick and he will do a good job. He's, a, he's the Army's best logistician. Well, I, so I have confidence in it. If we put him in charge of testing, we won't need a vaccine. We could be done with this thing in six weeks with proper use of testing. Um, you know, social media is full of misinformation, disinformation, but what, what do you want to restrict information to what comes out of official sources? Governments have been completely- well, that's, uh, that, Excuse me, John, you always say this, but I now need to actually come down hard on you because that is just a false dichotomy. Nobody is arguing that we should have an American Pravda. The point I'm making is that if you allow your public sphere to be dominated by completely unregulated platforms that can say, oh, we're just platforms whenever you uh, accuse them of behaving like publishers, and then, oh, we're just publishers when you accuse them of behaving like platforms, which is essentially the status quo at the moment. Under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, the network platforms are basically impossible to sue, and they have absolute power to allow on their platforms whatever they like within the remit of their own so-called community standards. It's an incredibly unsatisfactory state of affairs and it creates a veritable torrent of misinformation and disinformation. Much of it's overgrown, but quite a bit of it misinformation. If you think that's okay, then I think you've taken libertarianism to the point of self-destruction.
But you, you said you don't want government uh, regulation, but you haven't told me what regulation you want. I, mean, the, the regula- I actually have, John. I wrote an entire paper about this two years ago explaining that if you change the law, then it will be possible to sue these companies, which currently it's not. They have almost no legal downside. They have no liability if harm arises from the content on their platform. Because if you try to sue them for that, they say, oh, Section 230, you know, we're just a publisher, we're just a network platform. And then if they censor your content, if they take your videos down and you try to sue them for that, they say, how about the First Amendment doesn't apply to us because we're publishers. It is a catch-22 Section 230. And I'm glad that Senator Josh Hawley's brought forward a legislation to change it because it is a glaring anomaly in our situation. It's nothing to do with government regulation. I don't want to make the regulators more powerful. I don't think that would be the answer. But I do think that the lack of any real legal liability, the fact that Facebook can do what it likes with impunity is a major problem. And anybody who believes in the rule of law, uh, civil society, and free speech needs to be much more worried about this than we seem to be. In today's environment, though, whether this show will be allowed uh, on on Facebook once it ta- starts clamping down is, I think, the open question. But I want to agree with you on well, that. That's the point, John. I, At this I, point, we can't actually... If, if Facebook decided that it was actually going to stop Goodfellas being available on Facebook, and if YouTube, uh, which is owned by Alphabet, essentially took... You good fellas off YouTube. We wouldn't be able to do anything about that. So that's the situation we're in at the moment. If you think that's okay, then I don't think I don't think you're paying attention. Well, I did come up with uh, in the news this morning. I, I started to feel more Neil Ferguson because, of course, how did the riots uh, erupt in Chicago? Uh, social media, uh, you know, just what are you doing uh, um, when somebody sends a tweet saying, "Hey guys, the cops are busy tonight. Let's all meet at the Nike store on Michigan Avenue." That does not seem like a particularly uh, good use for social media. Uh, right. now, of course- Gen- Gen- gentlemen, I'd like, to, I'd like to add two words to this conversation, gentlemen, and get your thoughts on it. Those two words are tick tock. Well, that's, a, that's something that bombs do. Uh, they go tick tock. You'll remember that it's the sound that the crocodile makes in Peter Pan when it's coming for Captain Hook. And it also happens to be the name of an addictively popular app owned by the Chinese company ByteDance. And uh, regular readers of my Bloomberg opinion column will know that I agree with President Trump that it is not a good idea to have a highly addictive video app, which is used by half, that's right, half of American teenagers operating um, under uh, under the ownership of a Chinese company because apart from anything else, and there are lots of things that one could complain about, but let's focus on this one thing. Uh, the data that the teenagers give to TikTok uh, goes to ByteDance and is available because uh, ByteDance is a Chinese company to the Chinese Communist Party on demand. If you think it's a good idea for half our teenagers to do that, then I think you're underestimating the potential abuse of uh, of that data that could occur in the future. So I think it's the TikTok. So Susie Durkins likes uh, videos of fluffy puppies. Just how exactly is TikTok's collection of this a threat to national security? Well, you could read the Stanford uh, Daily, that uh, august organ on the campus where we are located, uh, in which... uh, a columnist just published an article celebrating the political use uh, that TikTok uh, has been put to by her 
generation. They claim, of course, that that was why Donald Trump's Tulsa rally the other month was barely attended, because TikTok uh, users had banded together to buy up the tickets with no intention uh, of attending. But she makes a wider claim that TikTok uh, is a political weapon. So I think it's important to recognize that TikTok is not just in the business of dancing pets, though no doubt when you first visit the site, that's most of what you see. But I think there's a broader point here, John. Uh, what these apps do, and that and Facebook has, of course, pioneered this, is, is not uh, passive. They actively seek data about users. The artificial intelligence needs all the data it can get because it's trying to work out how to get you hooked so that you just keep watching those videos because they hit your sweet spot time and again. Uh, so it is vacuuming up data about a really significant number of young Americans. And uh, don't take it from me, I, I consulted my my kids on this. Um, I consulted eight-year-old Thomas, who's been my research assistant this summer and a very good one. He recommended first that I look for the dancing ferret, which he said was about the most popular video on at the time. Uh, but then uh, he, he once he'd introduced me to the dancing ferret, he made the point that this was designed to be addictive. And he'd encountered some contemporaries, interestingly girls, it's much more a girl thing than a guy thing, at a camp uh, who he had observed behaving in ways that he thought were obnoxious because of uh, because of TikTok. Uh, my 21-year-old son uh, said that he never went near it because he understood all too well, he's relatively techie-minded, that the thing is is a huge data hoover sucking up information about users. It's Chinese ownership. Facebook does the same. Facebook's ripoff of it, we stole the intellectual property. Ripple is designed to do exactly the same thing under American ownership. So maybe HR has, I mean, I want a concrete what is the the, the, con the concrete answer is yeah. that, that China is gathering this data to weaponize it against the United States and other free and open societies to gain a position of dominance in the emerging data economy and of, of course to improve and refine their ability to surveil and influence audiences abroad uh, that is just it's just a fact right it's been it's it's a fact not only in connection with with you know, with, with apps like WeChat and TikTok but it's also it's also the object of a sustained campaign of cyber espionage uh, against the United States. The theft of of hundreds of thousands of, of records of, of servicemen and women and, and government workers. The the theft of of the of the Marriott hotel chains a database. I mean, it could go on and on. And and we're not clear yet, right? How how is all this data going to be used? But China is in a race, actually funded by a lot of U.S. venture capital firms. Um, it, their companies are uh, to, to to develop the the artificial intelligence related technologies. Let's keep it includes facial recognition, location data. You could go on, on and on. What you get from that app is uh, is very significant. TikTok is for the moment a private company. As Microsoft is a private company, Apple operates in China. I mean, I think we're much more risk from the hardware than the software. Just how is it that Trump forcing TikTok to sell its operations to Microsoft makes it makes the United States so much safer? I mean, yes, you talk about Microsoft where the data is held, and Chinese companies must, by law, must by law act as an extension of the government. And so the, the, the effort is to insulate the, the company under, under Microsoft ownership from the coercive power of the Chinese Communist Party. That's really the, the, that's really the threat. And that's the threat that afflicts 
all sorts of companies uh, is is the the ability of of the Chinese Communist Party to make demands, you know, to make offers, you know, that these companies just can't refuse. But to make it just to clarify for our listeners, TikTok is not an agent of the Chinese Communist Party. It is not collecting data on behalf of the Chinese government right now. There's a fear that the Chinese government may tell TikTok, you must give us our, your data that is currently stored in secure stuff in Singapore, and the TikTok gives into it. And then you haven't been clear about exactly what data it is no, or but, why it's but, but, but John, sorry. Other you're, than you're not the, actually clarifying uh, this, you're confusing our listeners with all due respect. Uh, TikTok is owned by ByteDance, and as HR correctly observed, a, a Chinese company, a Chinese internet companies are obliged by Chinese law to make data available to the government, i.e. the Communist Party, on demand. And that is an explicit statutory instrument in China. And so, uh, and by the way, TikTok makes it clear in its uh, user agreement that uh, if, you t if you use TikTok, your data may be available to TikTok's parent company, ByteDance. So it's not unambiguous. It's pretty clear, as HR says. I think a scenario. To the giant AI let, let's, let's, let's say that one of the teenagers who's now, you know, doing a, doing a dance on TikTok, uh, his or her personal data is now under the control of the Chinese Communist Party, and and it is under the control of the party for years and years. So there, there's there's a essentially an electronic dossier on that individual, who then goes on uh, to be a major activist uh, against the, the the autocratic policies and the and the and the repression of the Chinese Communist Party, the repression of the Chinese people, and now of course China does have a very advanced cyber capability. What if China is now able to access that individual's personal accounts, maybe bank accounts, maybe empty those accounts. No, I mean, there, wait, are all sorts of, there are all sorts of ways that, that this, that this personal information who, uh, uh, and, and, and visibility into not only the individual, but that individual's networks. And this is, this is uh, very relevant to the work that, that Neil's been doing on, on the power of these networks. It, it just, I don't know why we would want to surrender that our own personal data, information about the American people, their social networks, data that can be weaponized easily against them uh, to an adversarial power. I'm just, I'm, I'm nervous about the all things China are bad impulse that seems to be going on. But I, I want to go back to Neil on just one, one question. You, you wanted to turn the internet companies back into publishers. Clearly what's going on, I see great value in, in people turning to social media for their news because of the utter failure of the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, CNN, the mainstream media have become just devoted to one political narrative. And uh, to the there's a reason people are turning to those other platforms because they get news that that isn't uh, that is filtered unfiltered. They want unfiltered news. If you make Facebook into uh, the same legal structure media company as New York Times is, does not Facebook just turn into one more of the same? I think the important thing here is to recognize that uh, that what's happening on social media because of the nature of the algorithms that power it is in fact discriminating against true and accurate news and in favor of fake news, John. Because remember, because we're human and, uh, and a fallen species, uh, we are deeply engaged by the sensational and the not necessarily true. And that's why conspiracy theories 
Uh, QAnon, for example, it's just been revealed, uh, thrives on Facebook. A huge number of the QAnon conspiracy theory subscribers uh, are exchanging their ideas on Facebook. The crazy notions that exist, uh, and I'm afraid in, in rather large quantities, about the pandemic flourish in the environment of, where conspiracy theories are engaging, much more engaging than, uh, than a sober assessment of what is happening. If you think people are turning to social media because they're disillusioned with the New York Times and are seeking more objective reporting, then I don't think you're looking at what's really going on uh, on Facebook. And remember, Facebook knows this. They knew and they've known for years that they had a problem that the site was promoting extremism. And a rather good report appeared just a couple of months ago in the Wall Street Journal showing that while there had been an initial effort to do something about this, it had basically been killed by senior executives, including Mark Zuckerberg, uh, because it was nicknamed Eat Your Veggies, i.e. Uh, do this sort of boring, good-for-you stuff. And ultimately, that is not in the interests of a platform that has as its world, as its goal, at domination, as Zuckerberg used to say. They want the maximum number of users, and they want them to be engaged. Uh, so I have as many concerns about Facebook as I do about TikTok. My nightmare is that we kill TikTok and Facebook's replica of TikTok, which I think is called Reels, then takes over all that space and increases the power of Facebook. That would be a bad outcome too. But I think, and, and I would just say that, uh, John, John, you're making a case for diversity of viewpoints. You're making the case for yeah, for for the, these platforms being a, so, a social good, but the algorithms that drive users to more and more extreme contact that reinforces their prejudice and, and, and their predilections. I think it's more akin to the family in, in Fahrenheit 451, in Bradbury's novel, where it's just a continuous projection of, of, of a certain orthodoxy uh, to, the, to those who use it. And so I think this is a real danger. And we're talking about TikTok, but I mean, the, the, I think the danger, more dangerous app from China is actually WeChat, which, which, which we, we haven't talked specifically about. Um, but this is this WeChat also provides the Chinese Communist Party, as we've talked already, with access to data. But it's also used as a mechanism for control over Chinese expatriates abroad. And so, so I, I think that we we can't divorce the technology. We can't divorce the technology from from the user and the, that user's intentions, the employer of that technology and their intentions. Well, one thing that we haven't discussed, John, and I think it's important, is that. There's ample evidence that because young girls adore TikTok and like posting videos of themselves uh, dancing, uh, it's a magnet for, for pedophiles. And there have been a whole succession of cases, including in California, of this kind of behavior. But there's a kind of other side to this, which is in some ways just as nasty. And that is where people are, are falsely denounced as, as pedophiles or falsely accused of harassment. And I think going back to, to HR's point, you know, teenagers aren't the most prudent of people. Uh, you might have noticed this if you've ever had any yourself. And you're, you're essentially uh, creating a situation in which a very large number of American teenagers are going to leave compromising material about themselves, about their young selves, in the hands of China. And uh, fast forward 10 years, uh, that kind of compromat, uh, to use a Russian term, is exactly what a hostile power wants to have on individuals when they become significant actors.
China can harvest that off of Facebook, YouTube, Ripple, you know, anything else it wants to. The fact of Chinese ownership has nothing to do with their ability to, to keep compromising material on the internet about people. Well, I disagree because because U.S. companies, if they if they misuse data, they should be liable legally in U.S. courts. But ByteDance is a whole different story. Uh, we can't stop ByteDance handing over TikTok data to Xi Jinping because we have absolutely no ability to do so. All right, gentlemen, we have about 10 to 15 minutes left in, in HR. I apologize. I'm going to step on your potluck today because we have breaking news. This is my cell phone. My cell phone is blowing up with social media. Joe Biden has made his vice presidential pick. Does anybody want to hazard a guess or have you been cheating and looking at your phones too? Well, of course, it was always going to be Kamala Harris uh, for two reasons. One, I made a prophecy in Australia nearly two years ago that Kamala Harris would become president of the United States. And truly, this prophecy will come to pass and you will all realize just how very profound a prophet I am. And the second reason is that unlike the other candidates, uh, Kamala Harris had an early in with the Biden family. Her relationship with Biden's deceased son, Beau, was crucial to Biden's uh, preference for her. One of my uh, good friends who follows uh, Washington politics compulsively much more than I do told me all along it's going to be Kamala. Nobody else has a, sh- has a, has a shot. So I'm wholly unsurprised by this news. The only thing that surprised me was that any sensible person thought it would be Tammy Duckworth or Susan Rice for that matter. It was always going to be Kamala. Well, HR, he did not pick your predecessor at NSC, Susan Rice. Does that mean that foreign policy is now officially dead in this presidential election? I think foreign policy is not dead in the election, especially in connection with China, which we've been discussing. Uh, I hope it's not dead in other areas as well. Uh, but, but you know, I, I think that there is a general disinterest in foreign policy. And, and that comes, I think, from, you know, from, uh, from frustrations over a number of years with, uh, you know, with, with uh, extended military campaigns in, in, uh, in South Asia and in the Middle East. Uh, it comes, I think, from the, the Obama policy, which was one of disengagement from complex problem sets overseas and the belief that that disengagement was an unmitigated good. Uh, and, and that and oddly, uh, the, 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 uh, the Trump administration has adopted some of those very same approaches uh, to complex uh, problem sets overseas. And we were we were talking about you know, how effective. Uh, we've been, you know, so far in avoiding another 9/11, and how we got better uh, at integrating intelligence and law enforcement efforts to protect our homeland and American interests abroad. Uh, how we have we have sustained uh, counterterrorism efforts abroad, mainly through partner forces who are bearing the brunt of those those operations uh, to ensure that we can defeat terrorists before you know they can organize a major effort against the United States. But I think we're we're just kind of losing interest in it these days in, the, in that important campaign. And I would just say that I, I believe that that Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda-related groups are more powerful and dangerous today than they were on September 10th, 2001. And that's due to, to a number of factors. One is that just the numbers, right? If you look at the alumni, uh, Al-Qaeda alumni, ISIS alumni, it's orders of magnitude greater than the Mujahideen era uh, alumni uh, who, who, who committed 9-11. And if you look at how they are empowered now with much more destructive capabilities and, and you know, what they all of them carry in their pocket, right? Which is, you know, which, which is a means to communicate, a means to communicate encrypted, a way to, a way to develop uh, propaganda and recruit impressionable young people to their cause where they're brainwashed 
filled with hatred and, and that hatred is used to justify violence against innocents. Many of these, uh, of these ISIS and Al-Qaeda alumni have, have moved into Europe. Well, I mean, they moved into Europe and into countries that don't require visas to come to the United States. So I think we are at a period of increasing danger, but the impulse has been across both political parties, hey, let's, let's just regard these conflicts as messes to be avoided. But I, I believe that the, the situation could get worse overseas, but then also the threats uh, that, that we are keeping damp down with very effective operations, working with others, uh, could, could gain strength and and uh, and could 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 realize their dream again of of committing mass murder on American soil. What do you think, John? Is it Kamala Harris? It's uh, Kamala Harris. Senator NAB three could be the next senator from California if she's elected. Gavin Newsom makes the choice. You are all a California resident, Senator Ferguson, Senator Cochran, Senator Master. Bring it on. I doubt it. I mean, I've watched Harris through some of her actions in the health insurance stuff in California. She, she knows how to play politics. I would just say, I'll, I will make a, you asked for forecasts. Uh, I think the Republicans now know who they're running against and they will run hard against Kamala Harris. And a nightmare scenario for last week was a close election that winds up with recounts, legal challenges, which postmark was smudged on which ballot that was delivered three weeks late in what county in some part of Ohio that will spread over four or five states. And just, I hope this is decisive one way or the other, but it looks to me like another step towards a, a close, completely chaotic election, which is the, the one thing we didn't want to have happen at the end of last week. Well, Neil, she represents California, so that means she represents Silicon Valley. She represents Hollywood. She represents these entities caught in the middle of these conversations we've had and others with regard to security, with regard to privacy, with regard to data. Where do you see her coming down when she starts getting asked questions about this? Well, look, I think the interesting thing is that we already kind of know the answer because we saw her run uh, for the nomination and not get terribly far, uh, partly because her answers and some of the key questions I remember in particular on, on healthcare were unconvincing. I think it's a poor pick in many ways. I think Biden boxed himself in uh, long ago when he said it was going to be a woman and then it pretty much had to be a woman of color. I don't think she brings uh, a huge amount uh, to uh, the campaign where Biden needs it. Uh, because uh, contrary to what you might superficially think, uh, Kamala Harris does not poll strongly with, uh, with African-American voters. Uh, for example, uh, she's widely seen as having been a rather aggressive prosecutor. So I'm not convinced uh, that this uh, is a smart move by Biden, even if it was an emotionally charged one. And I think, as John just said, it just makes the scenario that we were discussing last week more likely of a very close outcome, a very close result. And I predict weeks uh, of uh, wrangling and ultimately a legal decision. And I think one really important scenario for us to consider is, is the one in which that legal decision, uh, finally, after, let's say, four weeks, comes down in favor of President Trump. What I fear at that point will be that the cities uh, in the blue states will erupt in, in, in an even bigger way than they did in June after the murder of George Floyd. Uh, Floyd. And I think that's, that's, for me, the nightmare scenario, John. It's not just the inconclusive result. It's then a result that is not regarded as legitimate. Uh, and we find ourselves in a real big mess at the end of the year. And then HR, any number of geopolitical shocks are conceivable because the US will seem to be 
entirely on its heels. And whether it's the Islamists or the Chinese or the Russians, it will be an open house to take advantage of American weakness. Yeah. The one thing our democracy is supposed to do is to produce an answer and the agreement by most of the country that that's the legitimate answer. And we've been sliding on that for the last 20 years. And whoever wins this next election, if it's vaguely close, uh, I don't see the other side uh, accepting the legitimacy of the election. And that could mean uh, that could mean war in the streets in the blue cities, or it could mean war in the red states, or God knows what it's going to mean. Uh, that's the one thing democracy is supposed to do. And I'm, I'm terrified it won't happen this time. HR, you're the resident optimist in this panel. <laughs> Please try to find something rosy. And here's what I'm curious about this thought. We, no one has said the word historic when it comes to Kamala Harris because this is a historic pick. She is a woman of color. We've had women on the national ticket. Hillary ran as vice presidential, Jeremy for Sarah Palin. But this is something different. Yet I just imagine much of the media coverage is going to go past that. Is that a reflection of the times we live in? Is that a reflection of this sort of shallow pursuit of presidential politics? Is there something actually positive to be taken out of this? Well, I mean, if, if you want a hopeful message, I mean, the, the hopeful message is that leaders across both Repo both Republican and Democratic parties will recognize that they can no longer underestimate how influential they can be in, in a positive light and abandon, you know, this kind of polarizing vitriolic discourse. And instead, you know, at least just give equal time to what we can agree on, right? If we see the, you know, the failure to, to, to pass a bill this year, this past week, uh, as as an example of of getting you know really not even being able to to, to work on what they already do agree on, uh, and, and allowing what they disagree on to to scuttle any any kind of uh, any kind of relief for Americans uh, as we continue to deal with the coronavirus. But I, I just think that le leaders have a responsibility. The American people ought to hold them responsible for doing their jobs, but also abandoning the the, the vitriolic discourse. And, and talking about you know, at least equal time to what we can agree on. Okay, John? Well, perhaps it is time to go beyond who you are and what you symbolize, beyond what you symbolize to what your ideas are. I mean, I was, like most of us, I was actually very hopeful in 2008. I was proud of our country that we elected the black guy as president. And, and I really thought that that would do great wonders for the country to have a, a black president. I disagreed with him on policy, but that was really important symbolically. It doesn't turn out to have healed as many wounds as I hoped it would turn out. Um, so maybe, maybe your identity should become less important. Uh, I mean, I'm glad that, you know, finally a, a, a black woman is, is a major party candidate. That's a major part of our electorate. They should have their turn like everybody else. Uh, but I would hope it was for her ideas and, 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 and competence, not because of what she symbolizes. And we'll find out a lot more about that, I guess. Neil, I'll give you the last word. Well, the key point, of course, is that if Biden-Harris uh, uh, is the ticket that wins, then the probability actuarially of Kamala Harris being the first uh, female black president will be quite significant. Uh, and that's why I think this is is such an interesting and important uh, decision. I think that the, the fact of Biden's age, his obvious senescence, check out any of the recent interviews to hear him stumble, means that this is more than an, uh, just an ordinary uh, decision uh, on who's going to be uh, Veep uh, on the ticket. I think you're really talking about who could be the next president of the United States. So that is bound to play a part in this election. 
And uh, voters will have to think long and hard if uh, Kamala Harris uh, and the Democratic Party in California that she represents is really the future for the United States as a whole. We'll see. I think it'll be close. Gentlemen, with that, we're going to call it a wrap for this week's episode of Goodfellows. Thanks all for participating. HR, sorry about the potluck. I hope it'll keep in the fridge for another week. We can maybe trot it out next week, if you will. But we will be back next week with another conversation uh, featuring our three Hoover Goodfellows. On the behalf of them, Neil Ferguson, HR McMaster, John Cochran, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, by all means, stay safe, stay strong, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week.